I'm Arthur Snell, and this is Doomsday Watch. Hello and Happy New Year, and thanks for joining me for a New Year special episode. Our last series finished at the end of 2022, and thanks to all of you who listened. If you're new to this podcast, do go back and hear our documentaries investigating the current threats to global security and the looming dangers of tomorrow. One of those episodes entered a clandestine world of black ops and secret wars, and today's special picks up on that theme with an incredible story of a covert action program in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'd been speaking to journalist and former US Special Forces veteran Jack Murphy in the run-up to the series, but we had to wait for his latest investigation to wrap before we could interview him. The story he ended up publishing is well worth the wait, peeling back the curtain on a remarkable series of covert operations taking place on Russian territory, and it gets to the bottom of why major sites in Russia's military-industrial complex have a habit of mysteriously bursting into flames. So let's get straight to it, with a brief word that if you're a subscriber, you can hear an extended cut of this conversation picking up on our earlier episode on Black Ops and Secret Wars. Find out more by subscribing through Apple Podcasts or searching Patreon Doomsday Watch. Now, buckle up. Let's go join Jack. So, Jack, welcome. Hi, Arthur. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, just before Christmas, I think on the 24th of December, you published an article. I'm just going to read the headline Mm -hmm. because it really sums up what an amazing story this is. I quote, the CIA is using a European NATO allies spy service to conduct a covert sabotage campaign inside Russia under the agency's direction, according to former US intelligence and military officials. And, you know, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's a really fascinating piece. It's sourced to a whole range of former officials, uh, senior figures, both in the intel community and military. But it is basically answering that question which I framed, which is, why do things in Russia keep catching fire? So perhaps you could expand a little on on that point. Who is doing this and what's happening? Sure. Well, there are a variety of different things that are happening inside Russia. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. But the main thrust of my article Uh, regards a NATO ally of ours that uh, the CIA has partnered with their intelligence service and using that liaison capability have inserted sleeper cells into Russia. Um, These cells, to some extent, these networks existed um, going back 10 to 15 years. I'm not exactly sure what the, the start point is as far as the overseas intelligence partner, but I've been told some of the cache site locations are 10 to 15 years old. So this is nothing new. But at some point, um, well, we actually know after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the CIA got involved with this intelligence service. I mean, they already had a very long standing partnership with this service, but they got involved in the sleeper cells and they turned up the dial on it, right? They turbocharged it. And the first cells went into Russia in 2016. Yeah. And they went dormant um, and waited for the sign to initiate, um, which they got two days before the invasion last year. 
So it's an incredible story. One of the things that you mentioned here, there are, uh, to be very clear, according to your reporting, there are no CIA personnel putting their toe inside Russian territory. Yeah, there, there are no Americans involved in these cells. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, our government is sometimes facetious about these things when they say no boots on the ground. But yeah. I'm not being facetious when I say this. Like, literally, there are no Americans involved in these cells, regardless of what their status may or may not be. These are uh, third country nationals, um, definitely not American in, in origin. Yeah. And of course, um, it's easy to understand why the US would not do that. You know, you can imagine there's enough tension as it is. If, if an American citizen was, was captured inside Russia, armed or involved in some kind of sabotage, you know, it, it, there would be an escalation of, of, the, of the most immense kind. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned here, which is a specific and publicly, uh, you know, attested fact is that President Obama, right at the end of his presidency, issued what they call a presidential finding involving covert action. Now, remembering that a lot of our audience are not based in the US, can you sort of explain what that is, what that means, what's the significance of it? Yeah, the finding is the the paperwork, the legal paperwork that the president has to sign off to to authorize covert actions. And not too many people get to see a presidential finding um, we're not even sure how many of them there actually are. Yeah. Um, but a, a finding will outline a whole host of covert actions that can be taken against an adversary, uh, ranging from cyber warfare to uh, disinformation campaigns to arming a guerrilla group um, and all the, all the way up to you know lethal targeting. Um, however, the stipulation, the fine print in the finding is that the CIA must come back to the president to receive authorization to use those specific capabilities outlined in the finding. So it's not just a blanket. It's something that they have to go back and get authorization for, um, which clearly happened in this case. And, you know, to be transparent about what I know and what I don't know, I don't know if there was a new finding signed for this or if there was a augmentation uh, given to an existing finding, some sort of amendment to an existing finding, which could also be the case. Yeah. So that that point you made there about going back to the president, because, you know, one of the things, those of us who watch too many spy movies, there's always a rogue unit doing something and they're not <laughs> yeah. authorized. But this is that this has to be authorized by President Biden. Yes, correct. Right. Uh, and President Biden's stipulation for authorizing these operations were that we work by, with, and through a partnered intelligence service. It couldn't be the CIA doing this directly and putting their hands on it in that way, um, but rather enabling a third party to put these sleeper cells into Russia. Yeah. So in in the piece, uh, you explain that that point. But but what you do say is that these operations are under the command and control of the CIA and op and managed by uh, CIA paramilitary officers. So again, for for those who are less familiar with your country's structures and so on, what who are these paramilitary guys and what does command and control mean? So within what is called the Special Activity Center in the CIA, you have a couple different paramilitary components. There's Air Branch, Maritime Branch, and Ground Branch. Uh, there is also um, the people who do um, black side propaganda, I guess you could say, it, disinformation operations for CIA. 
to break that down a little bit further, Air Branch flies covered aircraft, uh, clandestine aircraft that are not publicly attributed to the CIA. Yeah. Maritime Branch does the same, but with um, ocean-going vessels. Yeah. And Ground Branch are the paramilitary operators, so to speak, that have a unconventional warfare capability that they can be inserted into foreign countries. Um, they did this all over Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, much of this is publicly known at this point. And they are helping to manage uh, this program with the partnered intelligence uh, agency by going into working through what's called the European Mission Center, uh, again, a component of, of the CIA. Um, whenever I spoke to sources about, you know, are we using this foreign intelligence service as a proxy? They always really pushed back against that word and, and that notion. They said, no, this is a partnership. And um, whether or not the ops go forward, I mean, yes, the, the CIA for legal reasons has to have command and control. They have to have the ability to say, no, this operation's not going forward. Um, that's something that came through some of the executive orders in the aftermath of you know, Iran-Contra and some of these other abuses that you've heard about, that yeah. the CIA can't just arm a foreign group, an opposition group, and wash their hands of it. And, you know, if they go off and do something horrible, um, exceed their mandate, the agency can't just kind of like wash their hands and say, well, <laughs> it wasn't us, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the partnered intelligence service also has a large say in whether or not these ops go forward because it is their people and their program um, that's at risk. Absolutely. I, I want to uh, ask a bit about, you know, what they're doing. I, I, I mentioned perhaps slightly flippantly at the, at the outset this, the, the, you know, the strange habit of things catching fire in Russia. But, you know, there have been some major targets, haven't there? You know, weapons, uh, factories, other things like that. Yeah, there have. I mean, there's been uh, fuel depots, rail lines, uh, ammo depots, there's been industrial targets. There's been um, a warehouse uh, that housed Russian propaganda caught on fire. There was a building, uh, it was like the Aerospace Defense Ministry building that caught on fire early on in the war. Mm. Um, yeah, so the frequency and the way that it immediately began happening right after the invasion, you know, there, there's targeting reconnaissance that has to go into this. There's planning. You have to figure out your access and placement. There's all sorts of things that go into waging a sort of unconventional warfare campaign like this. And the way it kicked off day one of the invasion um, was probably the biggest indicator that this had been planned long term. Yeah. So you've chosen not to identify that partner, the NATO partner. Uh, and, and that is because, you know, that could compromise the security of these missions. But um, I'm going to speculate that it's a country that has the capability to field Russian-speaking officers who can blend in as part of sleeper cells inside Russia. I mean, that may be informed speculation. Um, I'm not going to identify any of the partners or partner who may be running these operations into there. I, I just think it's too sensitive and, and could potentially paint a bullseye on the teams that are still over there. Yeah, I appreciate that. There's a deeper history here in terms of the concept of sleeper cells and a related idea, which is so-called stay-behind networks. Mm -hmm. And that is 
you know, units that would operate in the event that that a country has been invaded, particularly in the Cold War context, or invaded by Russia. Um, there's some information in the open source about this. I'm, I'm aware, for example, of stay behind networks that continue to prepare for those eventualities, for example, in some of the Nordic countries. Yes. Is, is, there, is there more that you can say about that as part of a kind of wider special operations culture and, and history? Well, yeah, the sabotage networks we've been talking about are a little bit different uh, in the sense that now we're going to shift and talk about stay behind networks in Europe. Um, the stay behind is sometimes known as the fourth infiltration method in special operations, the other being air, sea and land. So, you know, obviously driving or moving on foot would be land. Yeah. Uh, air would be parachuting or flying in. You know, sea would be by boat or subsurface using scuba equipment. Um, but the fourth method is the stay behind method. Um, stay behinds are cells that integrate and blend in with the civilian population in an area that you anticipate may be invaded by the enemy in the future. So a great example of this is Special Forces Detachment A in Berlin. Uh, these were active duty Green Berets, uh, American Special Forces, uh, including European nationals who were enlisted in the U.S. Army under the Lodge Act. Um, some of them were even former Nazis. You know, wow. uh, they'd given that that up. But yeah. they uh, they were Germans, former German soldiers. Others were Hungarian, Ukrainian, etc. And they were integrated into the U.S. Army. Some of them in special forces. And these guys worked and lived off the local economy in Berlin. And they did targeting reconnaissance of um, potential sites uh, in East Germany. Uh, they could also activate in West Germany if need be. Uh, their mandate was if the Soviets invaded, they would go to ground. Once the Soviet forces pushed over them, they would activate and begin conducting acts of sabotage and espionage. Uh, some of the targets that I'm aware of, and there's still some things that we're not aware of about Detachment A, but they would target um, power stations, for instance, uh, I know that rail lines were a target. They even had, um, because way back in the day, Dead A started in the 1960s. I believe JFK was still president. Yeah. Um, there were still coal-fired train engines. And they wow. had blocks of plastic explosives that were um, camouflaged to look like blocks of coal um, that would be shoveled inside the furnace of a train engine and blow it up. Um, so that's just a, a few of the capabilities and a few of the things that Detachment A did. And that's how the stay behind mission would function. Yeah. And there is there's a kind of methodological similarity in the sense that, as you described it, these sleeper cells in Russia, they were not inserted this year. They've, they've been there mm -hmm. literally, as it were, you know, just preparing, perhaps quietly gathering information, preparing their capability for such an eventuality as what happened this year. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that the teams were inserted, but also the explosives were inserted and cache site locations were identified and dug and, and uh, these explosives were hidden. There's a whole network, an extensive network that supports these operations. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than just, you know, a few people inserting yeah. into the country. And of course... Presumably, they have to continue, you know, they're not self-sustaining completely. They have to get new explosives, perhaps new weapons and those sorts of things. So so that, that must be an extremely complex logistical and intelligence challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the, the article I wrote is really the first 
pass at history, as they say. Um, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot more written about this in the future. Yeah. Now, one of the things, again, which you know we can learn from history, and I'm thinking about World War II, is that many of the uh, special operations networks that operated, for example, in occupied France, got compromised because of interconsciousness of different cells knowing about each other. But it appears uh, that in in the case of, of this um, these operations, that 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 can't happen because they're operating as completely unique cells, so much so that sometimes they've tripped over each other. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, that they're working in such compartmentalization that they're not under, uh, you know, briefed on what the cells adjacent to one another are doing yeah. uh, or that they even exist. Yeah. So there's a brief mention in the article as well that the networks we've been speaking of so far are not the only players in the game, that there yeah. are a number of players involved um, to varying degrees. And I was told by several sources about uh, two cells that were casing the same target in Russia, and they ended up stepping on one another and, and compromising one another in that fashion. And it, it led to uh, them being compromised by the Russians, by the Russian uh, military or police forces. And and if if I'm not mistaken, tragically, there, there were there were some deaths in in that engagement. This, this was my understanding that there was uh, one killed and one captured um, during that. Um, I, I shudder to think, you know, what what would happen to one of these people who is captured. But um, you know, again, because of the compartmentalization, there's only so much they can reveal. Of course. Now, of course, you can understand why the Russians would have no interest in admitting publicly that this is happening to them. I mean, it it shows that the the degree to which they're incapable of securing their own country, the degree to which a range of intelligence agencies have have got the better of them. Uh, but from what you've just described, it's pretty clear that the Russians know that something is going on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Russians aren't stupid. Um, they understand quite clearly <laughs> that something is happening. They understand that there is an intelligence behind it. Um, and they understand the difference between, let's say, an angry Russian teenager throwing a Molotov cocktail at a recruiting station or something like this versus these tactical and strategic targets that are being hit. Um, they, they know that something's going on. In acts of sabotage like this, they carry a psychological component intentionally. Um, yeah. that's, you could argue that the psychological component is more important than the actual targets that are being hit. We're here in your backyard and we can strike you. Yeah. Uh, and, and that may be the bigger message. And you've, I, I think you have seen over subsequent months that these attacks have inched closer and closer to Moscow. Um, yeah. And if you saw things, I have to be careful how I phrase this, but I, I mean, doing uh, more strategic level strikes and hitting targets inside Moscow would signal yet another escalation. And I've been told that that may happen if Putin decided to escalate in Ukraine. Namely, we're talking about the use of weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And of course, again, drawing on history, you know, one of the ways in which uh, people judge the efficacy of these kinds of sabotage operations is not so much what they destroy, but how much resource they tie down. So I guess yeah. an aspect of this is is you've got all these Russian security, FSB, other guys who can't be 
dealing with Ukraine can't be deployed to the front because they're trying to secure Russia's own home territory. Yeah, precisely. And that's why you haven't seen any sort of um, like disinformation campaign around this or or propaganda campaign. Like you haven't seen videos of like shady characters wearing balaclavas announcing themselves as like, we're the new Russia front or <laughs> whatever it is. And mm. we claim responsibility for this attack and there will be more. You know, you haven't seen any propaganda around these attacks. And that's intentional. Uh, it's intentional to keep the Russian security forces scrambling in all directions. Yeah. So there's been a, there's been a couple of incidents in Russia which are sort of slightly in this category, but perhaps slightly more spectacular. So there was the attack on the Kerch Bridge. That's a bridge that mm-hmm. connects Crimea to, to the Russian mainland. And then also the assassination, which appeared to be targeting Alexander Dugin, who's this kind of fascist ideologue um, close to Putin, but in the end, ended up blowing up his daughter. In your assessment, do you think these are part of this campaign or do you think they're a, those are the emanation of some different sort of shadow force? So regarding the bridge, um, it's also worth taking a aside here to speak to um, the partisan activities in uh, eastern Ukraine and yeah. Crimea, yeah. Um, some of the things that are happening around the Ukrainian-Russian border that the Ukrainian uh, intelligence services and special operations service, the SSO, they are certainly doing acts of sabotage and espionage behind enemy yeah. lines. They are responsible for quite a few things in, in that area. Not not all of the sabotage strikes we're talking about across Russia, but they are involved as yeah. well. And I, of course, it's worth mentioning that those guys whilst I don't think you report that they're in any way superintended by CIA, but they have been quite rigorously trained by the US in in the last yes. half decade. Yeah, I, I kind of stayed away from that in the article just because I feel like it's an entire separate piece, yeah. really. But I, I mean, the United States and the CIA, we, we basically created an entire parallel intelligence service in Ukraine um, because the SBU was compromised by, by right. Russia. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're very much involved in, in what's happening over there. And I mean, right now, the way the United States and, and others are framing all of this, and you can see some articles in the New York Times citing anonymous intelligence officials, the, the way they're trying to frame it is that all of these acts of sabotage are rogue Ukrainian operations, right. um, which is, I mean, so much of what we've been speaking about here is based around plausible deniability. And blaming everything on Ukraine is uh, really a great cover story because what are the Russians going to do? Are they going to invade right. Ukraine? Yeah, that ship has sailed. Like, well, like, really? What are you? What are you? What are you going to do to escalate against Ukraine? Yeah. Really? Um, but to get back to your your actual mm. question, how the bridge demolition happened, um, I, I do not know. Um, I suspect that's a different program. Yeah. And then the assassination of Dugina, I think, is fascinating. That was an operation. Um, I don't think anyone really needs me to tell mm. them that. But to be perfectly clear, I don't know who ran that operation. I don't I don't know why it was done. Um, I've had some people tell me they consider it a black mark overall on the program. Um, but I, I, I can just say, you know, I think there's more to follow on that. And, and I would rather gather more information before I, you know, rather than yeah. speculate. I mean, there has been, I believe, one exiled Russian politician who claimed it as a sort of partisan operation of, of a purely Russian uh, group. But I, I think the credibility of that is is fairly low.
one of my fears right at the beginning of this conflict was the fact that the Russians undoubtedly had a very major foothold inside Ukrainian intelligence and security. And yet Ukraine has managed to carry out major military operations and other types of sabotage and special operations, apparently without being infiltrated. Yes. So there are two intelligence services in uh, Ukraine. Uh, One of them is the SBU. Uh, And my understanding is that they were regarded to be, you know, largely compromised by the Russians. So we worked with them. And, uh, you know, we've worked more with the HUR, which is the main directorate of intelligence in Ukraine. And my understanding is that a lot of the uh, the American effort has gone through them. Uh, it, it is amazing what's been done. And, you know, probably some of it speaks to how thoroughly uh, the Russians appear compromised as well. Um, it looks like we've really compromised um, much of their military communications. Yeah, yeah. In, in, indeed. And, and, and the evidence of that, I mean, just the, the most recent uh, Ukrainian missile strike, which apparently were, you know, they were led there by Russians using cell phones, yeah. which, um, uh, you know, it speaks to the, the inadequacy of their conventional comms, I guess. Yes, there, there, there's definitely a, a huge story there. Um, maybe that is the story um, of, of this war is, you know, the sort of modern day Alan Turing decryption of the Enigma uh, machine yeah. <laughs> that, that took place. I mean, there, there has been some, of, some things like that taking place. And- so uh, talking a bit about Russia itself, you know, the story you tell is an exciting one. It reads like the sort of synopsis of a great movie that hasn't yet been made. But uh, someone being very kind of sober and and critical might say, well, okay, but all this is doing is giving Russia more reason to escalate. It's making Putin feel more pushed onto the back foot. Could this backfire is my question, I guess. Of course, there's it's risky. Um, it's risky. You're essentially looking down the barrel of a gun and making this faith accompli and saying, well, what are you going to do mm-hmm. about it? Um I've spoken to some people who believe, you know, Russia really has nowhere else to escalate at this point, Um, that the only place they could potentially escalate to is WMDs, which is something they keep threatening, but they haven't done. I mean, so much of what has taken place in this war, what takes place between nuclear powers, if we're going to say the United States and Russia, even by proxy, Mm. um, it has been theoretical in the past. And now uh, we've seen the reality. The Ukrainian forces have retaken land in their own country. Uh, they've done cross-border operations. All of these things have taken place, and the Russians have not escalated to weapons of mass destruction. So I'd say a new system of norms is being developed. Uh, and really what so much of this about is, you know, it's a recalibration of global order, really, is if we're going to zoom out and look at the big picture. I mean, I think that's what this this conflict between you know, if we're to say between Russia and NATO is really about. Yeah. And I think it does also expose the weird way in which nuclear weapons are kind of both essential and useless. Essential in the sense that right. it, Putin could never have invaded Ukraine if he didn't have them because he never would have you know, risked it. But they're basically useless because he knows if he tries to use one, it's end of story for him, isn't it? Yeah, it's really fascinating how these things work and the calculus that goes on behind it. Like when I wrote that article, I I spoke to a Russia analyst named Michael Kaufman, Hmm. who was very, very interesting. And he pointed out that, you know, these covert operations, these sorts of sabotage, you know, speaking academically and and theoretically, um, that 
there's always the the specter, and we write and we talk a lot about the specter of you know stumbling into war. Yeah. Uh, somebody makes a misstep, somebody misinterprets an action, and we stumble into World War Three. Uh, but he points out that that's not really how states think and how they function. That they look at these events and they weigh it and decide how to respond in in a rational way. Um, and what you're seeing is the Russians have basically ignored these acts of sabotage because to acknowledge them is is too politically dangerous, and they don't want to end up in a full blown shooting war with NATO. Um, and maybe the the counterpoint to that is the uh, Nord Stream pipeline mm. bombing. Yeah. Um, the jury is still out on it. I have been told that it certainly was not us, as some people would speculate. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thought is that it was the Russians. But I, as we've seen you know, openly in the press, there hasn't been any proof. But well, let's say, for instance, that it was the Russians. We haven't taken any really counteraction to it, no. right? We haven't really, no. <laughs> we haven't escalated on our end either. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting to see that we pick and choose what we want to respond to based on, you know, the, the return on investment in each case. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned the Nord Stream uh, incident, because I wanted to go really now to the question of Russia. So in a way, the idea of there being sleeper cells infiltrated, carrying out sabotage operations. That that sounds like what the Russians do. You know, you'd expect railway stations in Poland to be blowing up. You'd expect, mm-hmm. you know, assassinations in, in Moldova or London. So um, why do you think we're not seeing this? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, during the Cold War, we do know that the Russians had some sleeper cells in the United States. They, that, that's been written about publicly. Uh, if you read Milt Bearden's book, The Main Enemy, he talks about a Czech national who was like a long-term sleeper. And uh, after, the, after the wall came down and the Soviet Union fell, the guy came in from the cold and you know the, the CIA approached him and he's like, hey, I have a wife and kids. Can I just stay here? <laughs> they're like, they're like uh, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, as long as you're not starting any trouble. Yeah. So yeah, we do know that those things have existed. Um, why are we not seeing cells activate, especially when we've seen, uh, in the more recent past, you know, in the UK, you had, you know, an assassination with a novel radiological substance. Yeah. Um, obviously the Russians signaling, they want us to know it was them. Uh, you've had some open source reporting that they allegedly blew up an uh, ammunition production facility in the Czech Republic. Um, why have we not seen things blowing up? I, I've had the same question when we killed uh, Qasem Soleimani a few years ago. Yeah. And everyone always spoke about the Hezbollah sleeper cells all over the United oh, yeah. States. I remember would, them. That would, they would activate and they'd start blowing things up and killing people. And none of that happened. Mm. So I think with like with much of what has transpired over the last year, we really have to ask ourselves some serious questions about the last 70 years of Russia analysis. Yeah. What well, was it correct? Was it accurate? And, and maybe there's there's certainly there is more to this story than I know. But I, again, back to um Milt Bearden when I interviewed him recently, he was telling me um at one point he was in charge of the covert action program in Afghanistan in the 80s targeting the Russians and he said the cables I sent back to Langley about the Russian army were the biggest pushback I ever got right. um, during my career because I was saying that the Russian army isn't what we think it is. Yeah, that it's not nearly as competent as 
our analysis believes it to be. And he said the folks back at Langley like almost went ballistic on him. And so I, I think it's a valid question. I don't mean to um, be flippant or paint with too broad a brush, but yeah, there, there's a question of Russian competency. Did we get the analysis right to begin with? And then what sort of counterintelligence do we have in place? Mm. Ha- have we gotten better at this since, you know, over the last 10 years? Um, do we have sources inside the Kremlin now? Yeah. Uh, have we compromised their um, encrypted communications? Um, I think these are all like, these are questions that will be answered by the history books. Yeah, definitely. Finally, I want to talk a bit about the article itself. So can you tell us a bit about how this story came to life? And, and why you think it, it has not really sort of been in, in what we might call the mainstream media? Yeah, um, people are scared. Uh, people are scared of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the agency. We needed them to make an on-the-record denial, which I published inside the article um, that you saw. And uh, I went to one, um, I'll just say a major online news outlet, and um, they asked me if I could get proof for them. And I said, well, what constitutes proof for you? And they said, well, can you have like one of your sources take like a picture of some PowerPoint slides with their cell phone or like get some documents or something? Mm -hmm. And uh, well, first off, that's unethical for a journalist to do that. Um, Second, it's illegal. Um, (laughs) And it's illegal for for, uh, U.S. government employees to do that. And I'm pretty sure it's illegal for me to ask Someone to, to, to commission the uh, the yes. act of espionage. Yes, it probably probably not allowed. <laughs> yes, correct. Um, and I, and uh, furthermore, I mean, I would never ask anyway. Um, those terminals have key loggers on them. Um, you, you you. I mean, we all saw what happened to Reality Winner, right? It, it takes yeah. the government two seconds to put two and two together. So yeah. I, I certainly was not going to go down that route. Yeah. So I went off on my own, and yeah, I published uh, this story myself on my own website on Christmas Eve. And the important point to note, which you you clarify in your article, that you have multiple sources who've told you about this. Yes, there are uh, at least six anonymous sources in the article. um, And then there are a number in the article that are on the record speaking to context. Yeah. Uh, Jack, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel, and I'm sure you feel this even more strongly, that as you said, this is the start of a big story, which will unfold gradually uh which you know maybe there will be a movie one day and there'll certainly be history books written but thank you uh for being the guy who wrote that first draft of history yeah absolutely author thank you for having me on the show and we're we're watching history in the making so we'll see what happens Welcome back to the extended cut of our interview with journalist and Special Forces veteran Jack Murphy. I wanted to pick up a theme with him, which came up in our latest series when we discussed the evolution of covert operations, from the Cold War era of intelligence and agent handling to more recent controversies from the war on terror around detainee operations and kinetic aspects of military action. I asked Jack, where does this particular covert action program fit in the wider historical context? Well, yeah, without a doubt, this is a uh, sophisticated operation supported by an extensive network that takes years and years to establish and costs 
large amounts of money. Um, I, I yeah. as I understand, into the billions of dollars in this case. Wow. Um, I mean, it is a paramilitary operation. That was a sneak preview of the extended version of this conversation with Jack, including his view on the themes of ethics in warfare and secret operations, which was also discussed in our Season 3 episode, Black Ops and Secret Wars. To hear the full episode and more exclusive content, subscribe via Apple Podcasts or search Doomsday Watch Patreon to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more from Doomsday Watch. Doomsday Watch.